0: Very good morning, Amokyo family. The last time I preached on the first Corinthians pulpit series, the sermon was rated R. Guess what? Today's sermon is also rated R, restricted content. And definitely I will need the parents to guide your children along. Now, I'm not trying to be funny, you know, but the passage today will uncover or unveil, which is the sermon title for today, why it's rated R. Today we're going to explore a passage which has been traditionally very difficult to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Now, before I read the passage, I would like to say here at the start that what I'm going to teach today will sound really bizarre from our modern scientific medical point of view. But after the sermon, you will see that what has been taught today has high explanatory power. And then we will all gain clarity regarding this very difficult passage. Now, in the course of this sermon, I guess some of us will also ask the question, Sure or not, Pastor Anthony, are you making things up? Why haven't I heard this teaching before? So before you ask me this question, let me tell you why few people have heard this teaching before. The reason is simple. It's because this teaching is relatively new from an academic point of view. The scholar who is responsible for today's sermon is Troy Martin. He wrote an academic paper for the Society or the Journal of Biblical Literature in 2004. His paper is entitled, Paul's Argument from Nature for the Veil in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. Colon, the subtext is, a testicle instead of a head covering. Yep, you heard me correctly, testicle. That's why today's sermon is rated R. Now those of us who are more acquainted with research and academia will know that it often takes many years before research finally reaches the masses, and many times research doesn't even reach the masses. And so Troy Martin wrote this paper in 2004. Since then, there were only a couple of scholarly exchanges. It wasn't until 2016 when another biblical scholar by the name of Dr. Michael Heiser, he began picking up Troy Martin's research that this understanding finally began to make its way into the churches. So, this is a very recent teaching. And that's the reason why most of us haven't heard this teaching before. Now, I have to preface also by saying that just because it's recent doesn't mean that it's necessarily right. But neither does it mean that it's necessarily wrong. Every teaching has to be evaluated on its own merit. Let me just give you one example, a clear example, where long-held beliefs were eventually debunked by new science and research. Around the years 1514 to 1543, Nicholas Copernicus worked on his research to show that it was not the sun that revolved around the earth, but it was the earth which revolved around the sun. Before Copernicus, the geocentric model was widely upheld. It was taught and accepted since the time of Ptolemy. Long time, over a thousand years. But eventually, Copernicus won the day. Today, we know he's right. It's the earth which revolves around the sun and not the other way around. And so it's famously called the Copernican Revolution. Now, in the same way, I believe Troy Martin's research sheds far greater light on this text of 1 Corinthians 11 than any other biblical scholar has done so far. By the way, if you are curious, the Society of Biblical Literature is the premier academic paper for the field of biblical studies. It's equivalent you know, to Nature. For those of us in the science arena, in scientific journals, Nature is the highest journal. It's the equivalent of that in the biblical studies. So to be published by them, it means a lot. That means that this paper is not some rubbish paper produced by some unscooped person. So there is real substantial research. So that's a very long introduction, but I hope it will really set the stage for us before we read today's scripture. Let me now read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I will begin at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved, then she should cover her head. Let me jump to verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of God. Come, let us pray together. O Holy Spirit, we invite you once again to be the teacher. Reveal the truths of God to us. Help us to truly understand what this passage is about. Importantly, Lord, help us to live it out, as always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as you have just heard, this First Corinthians passage is extremely bewildering. Why should a man who covers his head when he's praying or prophesying be dishonouring to God? You mean a man cannot wear a baseball cap to come to church and worship and pray? Similarly, similarly, why must a woman cover their heads to pray and prophesy? Within the passage itself, perhaps the greatest contradiction is found in verses 5 to 6 and then verse 15. In verses 5 to 6, Paul says that since a woman should not shave her head, she should wear a covering. But in verse 15, Paul says that a woman's hair is given to her as a covering. So, is a woman's hair a covering or not? That's the internal contradiction in this passage, which makes it so difficult for us to understand. Now, the key to unlocking this passage, really, is to understand the worldview of a first-century person, a typical first-century worldview. Paul obviously argues from nature in making his point. Look at verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? And so Paul, the main question we want to understand is how did Paul understand nature? What was Paul's understanding of nature? And this is where Troy Martin's research comes in. Now, He specializes uh, in Greek and Roman medical texts. And expect where, where most New Testament scholars may not have and so this is the value add that he brings into the scholarly conversation. Remember, what you will hear will sound bizarre, okay, crazy to our modern medical scientific mind. But what we are after is really is Paul's understanding, his first century understanding of nature. So Troy Martin studied Hippocratic authors extensively. Medical doctors will be very familiar with Hippocrates. Right. Essentially, he's acknowledged as the father of medicine, right? Modern medicine. And many doctors, in fact, all doctors, I believe, will have to take the Hippocratic oath when they begin their medical careers. So remember here, he's researching on Hippocrates and his followers. It's not some quack doctor. All right. So according to Troy Martin, Hippocratic authors hold this, that hair is hollow and it grows primarily from either male of female reproductive fluid or semen flowing into it and congealing. To congeal basically is to change from a soft fluid state into a hard, a rigid or solid state. That's congeal. C-O-N-G-E-A-L. Now, I know it sounds bizarre to our modern mind, but this is what practitioners of the Hippocratic medicine understood in the first century. And then he goes on to quote Hippocratic authors and including also later on Aristotle, the great philosopher Aristotle, okay? So this is what they say. Since hollow body parts create a vacuum and attract fluid, hair attracts semen. Hair grows most abundantly from the head because the brain is the place where the semen is produced or at least stored. Hair grows Only on the head of pre-pubescent humans because semen is stored in the brain and the channels of the body have not yet become large enough for reproductive fluid to travel throughout the body. At puberty, however, secondary hair growth in the pubic areas marks the movement of reproductive fluid from the brain to the rest of the body. Okay, remember, uh, it's bizarre, right? (laughs) This is their first century understanding. The nature or the Greek word for nature is physis, the nature of man is to release or eject the semen. A man with long hair retains much or all of his semen, and his long hollow hair draws the semen toward his head area and away from his genital area where it should be attracted. Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 correctly states that it is a shame for a man to have long hair, since the male nature is to eject rather than retain semen. In contrast, the nature, the fusis of women is to draw up the semen and congeal it to form a fetus. A woman's body, and this is where he quotes Aristotle, A woman's body is assisted by long hollow hair that increases the suction power of a hollow uterus. Again, I know it sounds very bizarre, but when you have this understanding, the whole passage will make sense as we will see in a short while. The conception of hair as part of the female genitalia explains the favorite Hippocratic test for sterility in women. A doctor will place a scented suppository in a woman's uterus and examine her mouth the next day to see if he can smell the scent of the suppository. If he smells the scent, He diagnoses her as fertile. If he does not smell the scent, he concludes that she is sterile because the channels connecting her uterus to her head are blocked. The suction power of her hair cannot draw up the semen through the appropriate channels in her body. And therefore, the male seed is discharged rather than retained and the woman cannot conceive. Now, this conception of hair also explains why pre girls were not required to wear the veil, whereas adult women were. Before puberty, a girl's hair is not a functioning genital and does not differ from a boy's hair. After puberty, however, this situation changes. Now, even Tertullian, a Church early church father, he drew an analogy between pre children and Adam and Eve who were naked because, before they became aware of genital differentiation. Afterwards, though, Tertullian wrote, uh, notes, they each mark the intelligence of their own sex by a covering. Noting the growth of hair to cover the female genitalia, Tertullian exhorts, Let her whose up lower parts are not bare have her upper likewise covered. Let her whose lower parts are not bare have her upper likewise covered. So Tertullian's analogy and exhortation presume that hair becomes a functioning part of a young woman's genitalia at puberty, similar to the way testicles begin to function at puberty as part of the male genitalia in facilitating the dissemination of semen. And that's why prepubescent girls, they need not cover their hair, but prepubescent young women should. In addition, This is how Aristotle understands the matter. The masculine functional counterpart to long feminine hair is the testicle. Aristotle calls the male testicles weights that keep the seminal channels taut. Their function is to facilitate the drawing of semen downward so it can be ejected. Without them, the seminal channels draw up inside the body and the male becomes unable to dispense semen into the female. The female is not given such weights, but instead develops a hollow uterus and appropriate vessels to draw the semen upward. Thus, testicles do not develop at puberty for females as they do for males. Long feminine hair assists the uterus in drawing semen upward and inward. Masculine testicles, which are connected to the brain by two channels, facilitate the drawing of semen downward and outward. Okay, so I shall stop quoting from Troy Martin's article, but I think we get the point here. Again, I know it is completely unscientific from a modern medical point of view. But when Paul wrote the letter to Corinthians, he does not yet have our understanding. He belongs to the first century. And as Troy Martin has convincingly argued, Paul's first century view is that a a woman's long hair is essentially and expect of a reproductive system. Therefore, as important as testicles are for men, so important is long hair for women. And so when Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 to 15, that long hair is glory for the female nature, it is a shame for the male to have long hair. It makes perfect sense, right? If you understand the first century worldview, what I've just described to you from Aristotle, from Tertullian, and then uh, Hippocratic authors, it makes complete sense. As a former Pharisee as well, Paul knows very well that priests who serve God as Levites, they receive special instructions for approaching the altar so that their nakedness is not exposed. You can look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 26. So Jewish laws essentially forbid display of genitalia when it comes to God's service. And since female hair is understood by Paul to be part of the female genitalia, Paul asks the Corinthians to judge for themselves whether it is proper for a woman to display her genitalia when praying to God. Ooh, yeah, think about that. So informed by this tradition, Paul appropriately instructs women in the service of God to cover their hair since it is part of the female genitalia. According to Paul's argument, women may pray, they may also prophesy in public, but only when decently attired. Troy Martin concludes his article by saying, even though no contemporary person would agree with the physiological conceptions informing Paul's argument from nature for the veiling of women, everyone would agree with his conclusion, prohibiting the display of genitalia in public Worship. See? It makes total sense, right? Now take it further. The apparent contradiction between verses 5 and 6 and verse 15 is also resolved. In the earlier verses, Paul says that women should cover their hair when praying and prophesying. But in verse 15, the word used for covering is, in the Greek is peripolion. Peripolion which Troy Martin argues that while covering is a so-called reasonable translation, the likelier meaning is testicle. The same word, peripolion, actually can mean testicle because the same word was used in other Greek texts, other Greek literature to refer specifically to a man's testicles. So used in that way, verse 15 makes sense. Let me begin again now at verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a woman, as a man, has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a testicle, not covering. Right? So here we have the problem solved. (laughs) The text suddenly makes sense. By the way, if you want a copy of Troy Martin's article, please feel free to email me. I'm happy to send the article over to you. So now let's go back and read the passage again. First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses two to sixteen, and you will see the high explanatory power of a Troy Martin's article. Right. Let's begin at verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every man who pray, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved, then she should cover her head. Verse 13, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a testicle, as the equivalent of a testicle. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor, so, nor do the other churches of God. Tada! Eureka! It makes sense. So what does it mean for us then? Since our physiological conceptions of the body have changed, and rightly so, after 2,000 years of research, surely we know things are very different. There is no more reason we should continue the practice of covering women's head in public worship because for us hair is just hair it is not part of a reproductive system so women you have no need then to cover your heads in worship because it is not understood by us as a reproductive organ that means women you're also free to have short hair can all the women with short hair say hallelujah hallelujah right And men, we can wear caps if we want to. And all of us, we can shave our heads if we're going for, I mean, uh, supporting cancer, hair for cancer kind of movement. It's fine because we now know it's not related at all to our reproductive system. But I think the principle of modesty continues to apply in our corporate worship of God. Last week, Reverend Dr. Chiang Ming Shun reminded us that we cannot be casual, in our worship of god and indeed that's the app message for all of us in this season especially when so many of us have grown so used to the convenience of worshiping online we have not prepared ourselves sufficiently for worship there is so much to be said about worship and the lord really has laid upon my heart you know this particular burden to teach his people to worship to teach god's people to worship I will work with the other pastors, you know, to produce perhaps short articles or videos on what proper and holistic worship entails. But in the meantime, I want to bring this sermon to a close by just giving three simple pointers on how not to worship God in a casual manner. How not to worship God in a casual or dishonouring manner. First, preparation. Preparation for worship is so important. Back in the days when everyone worshiped physically together, we would have to wake up early, we had have to get dressed. Today, with the convenience of online worship, majority of us lose this sense of physical preparation. Whether we, like, we, we realize it or not, physical preparation actually helps us to prepare mentally to meet with God. But more important than physical preparation actually is the spiritual preparation. In the Syrian Orthodox tradition, the members will be asked if they have prepared themselves by examining themselves thoroughly before they were allowed to receive Holy Communion. In other words, worship is not haphazard. They take time to check on themselves, to reflect and repent. And if they find that their lives have been unworthy of receiving the Holy Communion, they don't do so. So, preparation. Second, propriety. As we have learned from 1 Corinthians 11 today, while we don't want to be legalistic, you know, and stipulate to everyone what is the perfect attire to wear to church, it's important still to bear in mind basic modesty. My general rule is this. Any attire worn either by males or females, which causes others to be distracted from worshipping God, ought to be avoided. And by the way, it doesn't have to be revealing. It can also be something too outlandish, too much bling bling that draws attention to us rather than, rather than drawing attention to God. You see, ultimately worship is about giving God attention. It's not about us. And so our attire should be anything that reflects this posture of giving the attention to God and not to ourselves. Finally, price. There is always a price to be to be paid as a Christian. Yes, salvation is free in Christ Jesus. But there is a price to pay when we choose to follow Jesus. And frankly, one cannot choose to be saved and yet not follow Jesus. The two go hand in hand. Now I want us to listen to this excerpt from Master Wayne Cordario as he tells of the price some Christians pay in order to worship. Let's watch this video together.
1: Let me finish with this uh, story. Uh, we go to China from time to time, and and uh, uh, we train leaders. And this time, we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province, and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around. I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. Thought, no way. I looked at him and I said, you, you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, a little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles, and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway, and as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break, and I said, you, you you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize many chapters? She said, in prison. I said, you have much time in prison. So I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? She said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper, and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh, yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. You guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big, incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? (laughs) I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you.
0: What's our understanding of worship? What's the price we're willing to pay for worship Now to summarize today's sermon, to cover up one's hair with a veil is no longer relevant for us as modern-day Christians. For churches who continue this tradition, I hope we wouldn't label them as wrong because God knows their heart's desire is to honour God. However, for all of us who have been enlightened this morning, the important thing is to recognize we can all come before God unveiled. And what should be unveiled importantly is not so much the head but our hearts that we always approach God with complete honesty. And the keys to approaching God in worship are preparation, propriety, and the willingness to pay the price. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, repeatedly tells them to lay down their rights. We heard that sermon from Brother Louis some time ago. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he tells them to imitate him as he imitates Christ, the willingness to lay down their rights in order to worship. And this is because Paul understands that love is the highest law. Love for God and love for neighbor and each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. These are what's most important. We have seen in our pulpit series thus far that Paul repeatedly reman- reprimanded the Corinthians for their spiritual pride and he will continue to scold them, and rebuke them for their lack of brotherly and sisterly love. But for today, Paul's message for us is to honor and to love God by adopting the right posture. Psalm 51 verse 17 in the ESV says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So over and over again in scriptures, the real emphasis of worship is not on what's external or what's internal, our hearts and our attitudes. May we always approach God with unveiled hearts, in sincere preparation, lived out in modest propriety, and exhibited in a life willing to pay the price to follow Christ at all costs. At the end of the day, we mustn't be casual in our worship. Rather, we must always be committed, not casual, but committed to worship, and commitment begins in our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for helping us understand this passage Through Troy Martin's article, for those of us who need time to wrestle with this text, we continue to ask for your Holy Spirit's revelation and guidance. But for all of us, regardless of how we understand this passage, we understand how important it is for our hearts to be right to worship you. So Lord, we pray, you will stir in our hearts again this desire to worship you wholly and completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.